0: Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to our Protect Our Province COVID-19 briefing for Wednesday, November 17th, 2021. We are live-streaming from the traditional and ancestral territory of many peoples. We are grateful to live and work in Alberta, a province on the traditional territory of 48 different First Nations and the unceded homeland of the Métis Nation. Today's conversation is being shared in ASL. To ensure access to completely accurate information... Closed captioning will be uploaded after the live stream is complete. This conversation for the public is being shared live on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. The Protect Our Province COVID-19 Briefing is a regular panel of doctors and experts. We will endeavor to bring you timely, accurate updates on the COVID-19 situation in Alberta and take questions from the public and the media. The views of our panelists are their own and do not represent any institutions they may be affiliated with. We have collectively gathered here as concerned Albertans, attempting to ensure that everyone in the province has access to as much information concerning COVID-19 in Alberta as possible. As always, we will start things off with an update on the COVID-19 situation in our province. Welcome back, everyone, and before we dive into Alberta's numbers and look at emergency medical services within our province, I would like to pause for a moment and acknowledge the ongoing disaster taking place across the imaginary line that is our western border. From myself, an Albertan, I want every British Columbian to know that along with I suspect most of Alberta, we cannot begin to find the words to express our shock, terror, and deep sorrow for what you are currently experiencing. My town site suffered extreme damage during the floods of 2013 in southern Alberta, and I know significant portions of Albertans still carry that trauma with them today. The critical infrastructure, sense of personal safety, the mental health and well-being, and the livelihoods of of your entire province have been shaken by the impacts of the atmospheric river that hit southern BC on Sunday. I know those impacts will go beyond what I personally can imagine at this moment in time. As much as this briefing is Alberta-focused, we have been fortunate enough to have guests from across the country, viewers from coast to coast to coast, and we share a close relationship with POPBC and other public health stakeholders in British Columbia. Time and time again, the pandemic has reminded us all that imaginary lines in the proverbial sand only separate us when we bury our collective heads and choose to ignore circumstances occurring outside of our own postal codes instead of acknowledging the interconnectedness of our global reality. I bring this up for a few reasons. Partially in deep sympathy and solidarity, but additionally as a dual call to action. In June of 2013, the BC government issued an official statement of solidarity and support within 36 hours of the damage unfolding in southern Alberta. And within 48 hours, Emergency Management BC had formally offered support to Alberta and Parks Canada, including a temporary bridge for the Trans-Canada and they had already at that point placed emergency responders in our province to bolster our services within the mountain parks. As an Albertan, I can't help but wonder where our public offers of support are. I'm big on actions Albertans can take. I've issued many calls to you all to let your voices be heard by our elected officials. I believe this crisis requires another one of those calls to action. I cannot help but notice the silence from the GOA. No official statement, not an offer of solidarity, condolences or support, at least not that I've seen. A couple of questions in question period today, which let's be honest, most Albertans don't watch. And a tweet from the speaker about 30 minutes ago. It's not enough and it's not okay. Protect Our Province Alberta has its foundations in advocacy, scientific accuracy and public health. And make no mistakes, one of the largest, if not the largest public health emergencies that is impacting us now and will shape our global health for the next century is the climate crisis, an emergency of epic proportions. As a province, we need to support our neighbors. As a society, we need to protect all of the tiny humans here today and those that will be here tomorrow. And we cannot begin to do that without acknowledging science and enacting meaningful policy. And I personally do not believe our elected leaders showing a modicum of human decency is too much to ask. We need science based actions to protect us all from what is here now, crippling our neighbors today, and what could cripple us tomorrow. We need robust public health care emergency services and mitigation planning to keep our society moving forward instead of temporary band-aids. So I guess the long and short of it for today is check on our provincial neighbors and ask your MLA how our government can help. Now with today's update on COVID-19 in Alberta, here is
1: Dr. Vipond. Dr. Vipond? Well, Michelle, thanks. That was really important. Um, an important preface to today's, uh, event, um, I, I think it wouldn't be a surprise to our audience to know that I've been, I kind of cut my teeth on co on climate advocacy before I got involved in COVID advocacy. Um, and to be honest with you, the reason why is because it scares the shit out of me. Um, we are in so much trouble, um, in no small part uh due to the fact that our, our government officials are not willing to acknowledge how much trouble we're in and are unwilling to do what needs to be done in order to protect us citizens and that includes the bc government who continues to push for new lng projects despite the fact that our world can't afford any new lng projects um so so yeah, this is what's happening there. Uh, in, in, in a lot of sad ways, it's not a surprise to me. I, I wish I was surprised. I wish I could say it's coming earlier than I expected. Um, but this this is the first probably of a series of very disruptive um, events, and these will not end um, until we get our house in order. Until we get our CO2 emissions to zero and start to remove them from the atmosphere. Um, yeah. So on that happy note, um, let's let's keep fighting for, for climate justice. Um, but then uh, let's uh, take a moment to talk about uh, COVID. I've got some slides. I'm just wondering, um, bring those up. Yeah, so this is today's update. Um, so our cases yesterday were 421 which is a 15.9% decrease from last Monday's 501. So the seven day average continues to drop its 383, which is a 17.6% decrease from last week's 465. Um, Positivity very flat at 4.31 compared to last week's 4.34. So overall, um, just looking at these leading indicators, positivity has been, uh, you can go to the next slide. The positivity. Oh, I didn't put the positivity slide in there. Uh, But positivity has been extremely flat for a couple of weeks. Um, And but our cases per day have been slowly, slowly dropping much slower than in previous ends of previous waves. Um, I did a tweet storm about this uh, on Friday last. And basically I, my, my personal belief is this has more to do with cold weather than anything. Um, And, uh, and and probably schools as well, and the fact that we're no longer not, not adequately protecting our, our, our school kids. Um, so the combination of those things. So um, I'll talk a little bit more about what we can do to to accelerate this decrease and and to try and prevent a, a fifth wave. We go next slide, please. So these are our hospitalizations. Um so hospitalizations like the, the most recent. Accurate numbers were Sunday and Monday, which was Sunday dropped minus eight to 423. Monday was up plus one to 424. These are inpatients I'm talking about, not total hospitalizations. Um, Yesterday had a drop of of eight to 416. But as everybody knows who's been watching this, um, those recent numbers tend to be revised um, over time. So I, I expect to find out that our hospitalizations have actually been pretty flat uh inpatients over the last while our icus are also flat um sunday was uh uh, flat from 102 saturday to 102 sunday and then yesterday a drop of, of two to 100 so very very slow decreases on both of those sides uh there were two um some pediatric admissions as well uh and i'm just trying to remember i think it was two toddlers or maybe three toddlers that were admitted let me see if i can pull that up um yeah it was two toddlers that were admitted uh in the last 24 hours says inpatients, no new ICU cases. Next slide, please. This um, is where you can see how the, um, just the, the the flattening of that hospitalization curve and the flattening of that ICU curve, which is quite different from the, the last two ends. Um, next slide, please. And uh, deaths, I don't, I don't have a death slide. Um, I'll just talk about that briefly before going on to the demographics. Um, the deaths were were three, uh, one of those three being somebody in their 30s. Um, this brings us to a total of 47 deaths under the age of 40. Um, and so, yeah, this isn't just a, a, a geriatric disease. Um, there are young people that are passing away from this. Um, and just a hat tip to Matthew Black, um, who's been keeping track of these numbers. Now, going to that slide, there's a. Uh, this is the demographics broken down. Ah, uh, per hundred thousand. and you can see that uh, really still dominating um, the the cases are are those five to eleven which have the combination, unfortunate combination of both being unvaccinated because they're not allowed to be vaccinated and being in schools um, where they're congregating indoors uh, in like basically a mass gathering. So um, it's not really surprising to me that they they continue to dominate the numbers, but there are things that we could still can do. We still don't have universal mask masking in schools. We're still missing the K to threes. We're still um, missing the ability to or, or the the mandate to keep them their masks on when they're sitting at their desk facing forward. We're still lacking the acknowledgement of um, of uh, airborne transmission by our boards of education and instituting mitigation plans for improving ventilation and infiltrations. Um, all of these things we can do better and protect our kids. And of course, extracurricular activities, which have a, a, an exemption as well on masks. So um, that ends the update. I'll just do a quick short uh, editorializing that um, uh, I think everybody in Mass for Canada and a, a significant number in Protect Our Province, Alberta, heed the sigh of relief. Um, This weekend when our Canadian public health agency uh, finally began talking about COVID um, in terms of airborne transmission and aerosol, uh, uh, aerosolization of of the virus. Um, This is, in my mind, uh, the the biggest uh, turning point uh, in the acknowledgement of the science of this disease. I'm hoping that it makes a difference in improved mitigation measures and improved understanding by the public as to... um, as to how to protect themselves. And um, and even Dr. Hinshaw was uh, acknowledging this yesterday. Um, There is a bit of revisionist history going on. Just keep an eye out for that. Um, This is a huge change. Uh, Don't let anybody uh, tell you differently. We're still waiting for a response by um, Alberta Health Services. I think the team will be talking about that uh, in this panel discussion that's coming up shortly. Um, But uh, Uh, we need to be protecting ourselves. And aside from ventilation and filtration, uh, physical distancing, um, the the other big thing we need to do is better masks. So get a really good, well-fitted mask. That could be taking a surgical mask and using a mask brace, um, double masking, or upgrading to a respirator, uh, either an elastomeric respirator, which you can reuse, or one of the disposable ones. So, and that that goes uh, as much for the public as as it, uh, as it does for healthcare workers and other workers. And for the first time of the pandemic, this recommendation aligns with that of the Canadian Public Health Agency. Uh, and I'm, I'm really thrilled to be able to say that. I'm turning it back over to you, Michelle. Oh, actually, before I totally quick quickly, before we go to that, I just wanna say how much um, our paramedic colleagues, our EMS colleagues, how important it is to our healthcare system important it is to my job as an emergency doctor. Um, We need to support uh, this system. Um, There's evidence that there are cracks in the system that are occurring, and I'm sure we're going to get into the weeds on this uh, right away. Uh, But I just wanted to reiterate, as an emergency physician, um, like we are brothers in arms uh, and sisters in arms um, with with our paramedics. And and I just want to thank you Mike, and I don't know if Peter's there yet, um, for all that you do. Um, So, so thanks for being, um, thanks for being on Team Alberta.
0: Thank you very much, Dr. Vipond. I started the program today talking about a large scale disaster and on the front lines of any large scale disaster or personal medical disaster is our first responders, a team of highly trained dedicated professionals who are only three digits away dedicated self-sacrificing members of our society who historically have seemed to appear like magic within minutes of a phone call on our front doorsteps to offer their life-saving skills and support. At least that's how it always felt to me until recently. Lately, I felt like not a day goes by that some jurisdiction within our province isn't experiencing a critical red alert situation. A situation in which no ambulatory services are available for the community or they are limited. A situation that not only has dire consequences for Albertans, but has unimaginably complex impacts on the humans who have chosen service as their lives work. So with us today, we are going to start off with Mike Parker while we wait on our other panelist. If our other panelist does not make it here today, this is going to be the first one-on-one interview I have done on Protect Our Province, Alberta, Mike. It's really good that I'm trained as an improviser, and I am so happy that I have you here today because I have a lot of questions, and so oh. do the folks at home. So if I could start with, could you please introduce yourself to everybody with us and tell us a little bit about those you represent?
2: Thanks, Michelle. And and well, if I get the privilege of being the first one-on-one uh, interview with you, I uh, it'll be a checkbox for me as well. So thank you so much, and, and Dr. Vipon, thank you as well. My name is Mike Parker, and I have the privilege of being the president of HSAA, the Health Sciences Association of Alberta. I want to thank all of those who contribute to protect our province on these COVID updates. They have been critical, and I need to recognize every member on the front lines of the healthcare system trying to hold this system together. Michelle, you commented uh, initially on the crisis in BC, and and if I could just say that since Sunday, this has been unfolding rapidly. and, and, uh, and the lack of response from this province is disheartening. Uh, know that, that from, from my position, from all of our members, our heartfelt uh, for everyone in BC today, and, uh, and I imagine we'll be uh, involved at some point soon, it does impact all of us as members in this country. Uh, and I like how you've identified, we are a boundary list. There is nothing stopping this, and thank you for that. We know Albertans are being bombarded with misinformation and misdirection when seeking clarity on what's happening during this pandemic. And I appreciate how much time and effort you've put into trying to cut through the political motivated decisions, including the decisions to do nothing and to focus on the people of this province. Reaching out directly to Albertans like this is so important right now. Late this summer, HSA started an EMS page on Facebook The purpose of the page was to give people a snapshot of what's happening in ambulance services in their small communities and municipalities. Within days, we had media from across the province who were contacting us to do stories like red alerts or ambulances being dropped altogether in their communities because there aren't enough paramedics to staff the ambulances. Even better than that, people started using the information to engage their elected officials. And now municipalities are holding town halls, As we start to see demand from them for the province to do something, anything, during this crisis. And friends, we are fully a crisis within a crisis in Alberta. Albertans can no longer be assured of an ambulance to be available for them when they call. And even if there is one, it could be coming from over an hour away. COVID has made a bad situation even worse. And now that the weather is getting worse, which always leads to an increased calls, But this has been getting out of hand for a long time. And we have heard smoke, we have heard increased temperatures, opioid crisis, COVID crisis, you name it, every other reason except we don't have enough people to respond to the calls that are coming in. Here's a quick rundown of the information that we were able to gather from our HSA EMS Facebook page. And I'm gonna go back to last Friday, ending 0600 yesterday morning. So not even a full five days. Here's what we saw. Over 214 paramedic shifts that are unfilled in this province. There are 48 code reds in 19 different communities. In Airdrie there were nine, Cochrane seven, Calgary six. There were also what we are terming rolling red alerts. And they happen when multiple communities around one major center all start going code red. And here's the example in Calgary. Calgary goes code red, and so does Airdrie and Cochrane and Okotoks, Black Diamond, High River, Predison, Strathmore, all reporting code red, all at the same time. Ambulances were dropped entire shifts in eight separate communities, including four times in five days in the community of Caroline. When resources are spread so thin, our response times begin to increase and there were 22 incidents where ambulance response times exceeded 30 minutes. There were nine events where response times were greater than 60 minutes, including an ambulance being sent to respond to Calgary from the community of Vulcan, which is an hour and 20 away. From Lethbridge, there was a unit in North Calgary responding to a call. Now, in that scenario specifically, I'm not sure if Lethbridge came from Lethbridge or was trapped in Calgary because there was no other units in the area, leaving Lethbridge exposed. And here's what we need to do about this information. It's provided to us on a voluntary basis. And that means that the numbers are low. And when you hear me say at least so many times, it's because that's how it works. Not every event that is that critical is being reported to us, so at least that many times. HSA has issued a call for AHS to share the truth, to share the information about what's happening in this province. And we have yet to see a single response. I'll stop there and let's look forward to some Q&A for a little bit. Michelle?
0: I am looking at my script, but at the same time, so much of what you just spoke about is raising not just red flags inside me internally and all of the waterworks that sometimes come with this program and anger. And I, yeah, in all honesty, I don't even know exactly where to begin. Um, Like I said, off the top, your members, at least for me growing up here in Alberta, almost seemed magical. You dialed three numbers and for the most part, at least around the urban centers You know, within three to four minutes, these wonderful humans would be at your front door to make sure that you were still going to get to have dinner with your family. And so hearing you talk about over an hour, in some cases in Calgary, yeah. A major huge center, let alone for folks like me who live west of Calgary, that would be drawing from Cochrane or Black Diamond who were probably trapped in Calgary. I'm not even sure. I Yeah, I, it is beyond terrifying.
1: You, so
0: with you, that, oh
2: yeah, please. I was going to say, uh, in, in the region that you've described, when you see a Kananaskis responding first unit in lights and sirens from Kananaskis to metropolis of Calgary. That, that is a real scenario that does happen. Cochrane into Calgary, Black Diamond into Calgary. These units, that's what's happening. And, and the question I have, first I want to say, they are still magical, Michelle. Yeah. Trust me, <laughs> Trust me they are. How, how they do this, I don't know. Because, uh, because uh, yeah, responding an hour to a call. And in that time, as they're responding, they are being updated from the scene. The family is still on the phone if they haven't been emergency disconnected by dispatch, which is a process that's happening now because so many calls are coming in or dispatchers are forced to hang up on you to answer the next call. So as they're coming to you, they're being updated. And as we can imagine, in an hour's time, as it gets more critical and more critical, the descriptions are getting more and more desperate. And the paramedics know what they're heading into. The intensity level is so high by the time that they get there yeah you're right they are magical anyway sorry
0: no um please don't apologize at all during the time that we have together today let's talk about that for a minute um how are they how are they doing we hear a lot of news stories um but we also hear a lot of unfortunate silence i think yeah. um with the odd sort of mention of lack of access to support. Obviously with over 214 shifts unfilled this weekend, we are looking at humans who are stretched beyond a breaking point. Um, I read an article today that told me that most first responders have access to three hours of paid mental health support, like with a counselor um, during a calendar year.
2: So the, the EFAP program offers you a telephone call counseling or a or a Skype counseling system. You're right. It's 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 nowhere near what's needed. It's almost embarrassing that we that we have that as a as a piece to support our people. There is there is uh, still a little bit of hang-on in our legislation that says that paramedics do have access to presumptive PTSD. The downside is you have to be diagnosed with PTSD, right? So instead of protecting us before. They get injured like this under the mental health strains that they work under well it, it's it's at least it's a step that there is some support all of the supports for the remainder of our members was wiped out in, a, in an act of repeal from the current government where they took away the access to presumptive care to our other allied uh workers that are on the front lines today the ot piece is is, is such a a difficult one and and i'm gonna try to coach myself here michelle i'm, I'm gonna do what i can You're, you're making it feel very comfortable to give you you the full perspective here. But when a minister says I'm going to release the cap on overtime, well, as you can imagine, there's already 200 and some odd shifts that are vacant. Overtime isn't going to change that. And the 10 or 15 phone calls every day from staffing for these folks saying, come back in for overtime, come back in for overtime. You know, the system is failing. You know that if you put your uniform back on and walk back in, you're walking back into an absolute crisis where 30 and 45 minute response times are the norm, where you can't find time to eat a sandwich or, or have a restroom break because the tones are going off for the next call before you've cleared this call. And this is the environment they work in where you are going from high intensity to high intensity. And in some point you need to maintain your compassion because nobody got into this job to be at that intense level for 12 plus hours a day. And when, you call because your mom has a, a hip pain. You need the compassion of someone to walk in. And they are coming off of such an intense three hours prior or who knows what. And you name it. The worst nightmare is what they see daily. That's their job. And uh, and they're going to come in and try to find that level of compassion when. And again, this, this sounds so simple. They haven't had time for a bloody coffee or a sandwich. And. And just to step off the ledge for a second and reset your mind, so you can step back into that world and help again is 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 a it's frustrating. And what and, and when I hear from them, the, the anger, the frustration, is a symptom of of a greater issue of of their uh, intense intense burnout that they're facing. Yet they want to do the job, and we have vacancies. Like fill the bloody vacancies so we could at least staff our ambulances to get to those calls. Because nobody should have to respond an hour and nobody should have to wait an hour for paramedics to come through that door.
0: On that note, is this a situation that is unfolding from coast to coast to coast? Or is there a uniqueness in terms of the number of vacancies that are happening in Alberta?
2: That That is... That is a great question. Do we see a rise in call volume across the country? Well, what we see is a decrease in investing in our frontline services, in healthcare globally. We see a reduction. We see a move to privatize. We also we also see this. When you have a career that burns you so hard, uh, our members aren't surviving a career's worth of time. And so there's a decrease in members because they just can't maintain a career's worth of service anymore. In Alberta specifically, when AHS took over the system from municipalities in 2009, there was an immediate reduction in ambulances across the zones. They took uh, one out of Strathcona, for example, one out of uh, St. Albert, one out of Leduc, and expected Edmonton to fulfill that void. Well, we were already running Code Reds in Edmonton when they did this, This increased their zone coverage, increased the population, and that continues today. And what we find now is that there has not been any additional resources added, and our population call volume continues to grow. We're now 10 years plus later in this transition. We're not adding resources. There was an announcement from the minister who said, we're going to put another 100 people on. And that happened this summer. He announced that. Here's the reality the 100 people they're looking at are already working overtime plus, and they're going to move them from not getting benefits to getting benefits. They're going to move them to full-time. So that's great. It's about time they have access to their EFAP, access to mental health supports, access to these pieces. But they've already been fulfilling 40-plus hours a week, and they're just moving them into a benefit-eligible program. It does nothing to the front lines. It does nothing to help response times in this province. So... Getting tired of listening to the constant, yeah, we're doing something, and I'm not seeing a whole lot of anything. Uh, back to you, Michelle. Sorry, I don't want to. No.
0: This is, we are generally a program that has just open conversations with a variety of panelists. And so since I am attempting to improvise my uh, one-on-one hat, I will, I will, doing pret- well. I will pretend to be a Ryan Jesperson or a Nate Great. Pike for a moment. Um, and I'm going to roll us back a little bit just so I can make sure that all of our listeners are sort of on the same page. Okay. So I'm going to hit you with a series of sort of smaller questions.
2: Let's do it. Can
0: you remind me again what HSAA? stands for?
2: The Health Sciences Association of Alberta. We represent 29,000 frontline healthcare workers, from respiratory therapists to mental health therapists, to your lab techs, paramedics, everything in between.
0: Can you now tell me, just that way we're still all on the same page, the difference between like a paramedic and an EMT and an EMR? I don't know that I fully understand how that system works.
2: That's a, that's a great question today uh, through the regulatory body. Uh, any individual working on an ambulance frontline healthcare is titled a paramedic. It was a, I'm going to guess it was a communications piece. It's just too bloody confusing. Like you've just suggested, what does it all mean? Emergency medical responder is the name of the EMR. And uh, that was a, a program introduced uh, 20 years ago to start bringing people into the system to get, uh, some people in small communities working on an ambulance to respond and and support their communities Uh, emt is emergency medical technician it is a uh, college level program that provides the uh the next level of training on top of the emr you advanced through the emt program and then you have two more years to do the what was called the paramedic program but we now call them uh uh, well, critical care paramedics, CCPs, ACPs, there's a couple of different balances there. Uh, some other provinces have different jurisdictional lines on how they define them, but the, the highest level being the critical care paramedic. You might find those working on some flight crews. They have a little more advanced training for some more advanced equipment. The The main system out there requires advanced care paramedic to be on an ambulance, giving it the advanced care level uh, and working uh, hand in hand with EMTs or or critical care, or sorry, uh, primary care paramedics as well. So <clears throat> these are the different phases of of it, and what we see a lot of the time now. We're using the term downgrading, which is it's just difficult to explain it. But when you don't have a paramedic to get on the ambulance, and then what I'm talking about is a primary care and an advanced care. So when you don't have an advanced care paramedic on the ambulance, you downgrade it to a primary care level. Uh, there are less pharmaceuticals being uh, accessed by that level of training. So uh, rapid sequence induction or, or any of these other pieces that, that you'll find on a critical care or an advanced care are not uh, accessible through a primary care. And I hope I haven't walked myself into a circle here, but uh, there are different levels. Let's just say this. There are different levels of training. Uh, the, the upper levels would be the advanced care paramedic partnering with a primary care paramedic And uh, for the most part, our front lines of of EMS, uh, there are not that many uh, EMRs or emergency medical responders currently in the industry or left in the industry, for lack of better terms. There are a few, but not too many.
0: Okay, I think that this is good. I am following along, which leads me to believe that other folks will be following along as well. Okay, so as a human in Alberta, could you talk me through, we sort of did a big overview of it in terms of now how ambulances are dispatched from anywhere they happen to be, be available. Yeah. But could you talk me through what happened when I called 911 three years ago and what happens when I call 911 for a medical emergency now?
2: Okay. That's a, that's a great question. Uh, we have three dispatch centers located in the province today that dispatch ambulances and we have to split up because in calgary there was a time where calgary emergency dispatch had police fire and ambulance that has been moved off uh we're going to talk about two things here we're going to talk about how that dispatch system was and is and we're going to talk about closest unit response or two pieces that i'd like to cover with you love it so today's today's dispatch model has all system EMS, whether they work uh, private sector service or municipals or sorry, municipals like Calgary or Fort McMurray or major centers like Edmonton, Calgary are all tracked within one system. And if the Calgary Dispatch Center gets overloaded, they can uh, share calls to Edmonton if they have space or share calls up north to the North Communications Center. And they, they exchange and kind of back each other up as the busyness rises. And I'll be clear with you again, when I said emergency disconnect protocol means I am so busy in this center. There are so many phones ringing. I have to say, thank you. They're on their way and hang up regardless of what we're talking about because in the mind of a dispatch uh, communications officer, the next call is the most important. They cannot leave calls to go unanswered. I know what's going on in this call. I need to get to the next one, which requires disconnecting because they are so busy today. From that, they dispatch the ambulances and they use a closest unit protocol. The way we are different from three years ago, Lethbridge might have dispatched their own ambulances, and then maybe Calgary dispatched their own, Red Deer their own. It's now all one system, which I would argue needs some tweaks, let's be crystal clear, and it's not from our frontline members. They are doing all they can in this system, just trying to get by. They've got the same pressures that the paramedics on the street are seeing every single day. But In this system, a closest unit that we're going to talk about. I'm going to take you back to the early '90s when I was on the street. I'm in rural Alberta, and I would answer the emergency phone in my own house and say, "Hi, Uh, Regional Ambulance." I'll just leave the name of the town out. And I need to know which side of the highway your car has landed in a car accident because might be my private company, might be the other private company. We got to fight over whose ditch you're in today. Closest ambulance is a fantastic concept. If you're driving past an incident, a pediatric cardiac arrest, hell yeah. I want the nearest ambulance coming. I want all of the nearest ambulances coming to my call. But what's happened is this is that once we start drawing in nearest ambulances, it becomes a uh, Camrose into Calgary and then maybe a Cochrane and then maybe a Fort McLeod. And now we've sucked the entire system dry. There are no close ambulances. So, The concept of closest ambulance is great. They're not close anymore because we don't have any. And so that's where it it gets odd. And that's why when I said earlier, you see Lethbridge Ambulance working North Calgary. Here's how that would happen. Uh, Lethbridge Ambulance would be dispatched to uh, the hospital to take a maybe a CCU transfer to Calgary, uh, heading up to a cath lab or something like that kind of a system. And as they get there, they offload, they repair their truck, put it back in service. They're gonna drive back to Lethbridge. Ding, they're the closest truck to a pediatric code in North Calgary, for example. Let's just make it as intense as it can possibly get. Yep, the only truck left in the entire system is a unit that was doing a transfer 10 minutes ago and is now responding to North Calgary. Technically, they are should be covering the city of Lethbridge and they're not. So there's some of where we're at. If the system was managed properly which they have no idea how to do apparently we would have enough paramedics on the street that that truck would get back to lethbridge and the current level of service in calgary would cover the calls that are needed and there would have been a a regional a calgary paramedic unit sitting close enough to that call in north calgary to actually get there but we don't see that
0: and so how is that i i I really can only imagine from talking about the 911 operators to your members who are boots on the ground, how that is feeling. I could not imagine having to hang up on someone while they're Parent or grandparent was having a heart attack because I needed to answer the next phone call I cannot imagine transporting someone critically ill from my hometown to suddenly having to be navigating rush hour in the middle of Calgary or Edmonton way out of my normal route of practice yep. to hopefully make it on time to save someone else's life the, where are they putting that
2: me, uh... I need to stand tall, Michelle, and say these are experts. And and when they do their job, they do it with the utmost of passion and expertise. When a, when a dispatch communications officer has to make that decision, I know damn well uh, that it takes its toll. I know that when... <laughs> I could put myself back in the, in the days of, of, of a community paramedic and I'm heading into the city of Edmonton, and I don't even know where the, hell the hospital is. Right, Like my town that I'm coming from didn't have streetlights and now I'm in South Edmonton trying to find the friggin' hospital. They have a way. They are experts. They can do this. They can give them a job. They will accomplish it. I guarantee you 100%. When they get there, they will give you everything that they have and then some.
0: There's a really huge part of me that feels like they shouldn't have to. how do we how do how does michelle how does her neighbor whose name we'll say is emily even though it's not how do how can we help
2: okay um i look why don't why don't you and i have a conversation with emily then i think that's a great way to do this because uh i can see that, that neither one of us is doing uh uh, as champion as we should for a moment so let's let's talk to emily yeah. for a second say hey, emily my neighbor over the fence i got to tell you something uh, our paramedics who we entrusted in protecting all of us in this province are at a breaking point they are exhausted they are run to uh, a level that we cannot keep them at because it's going to cost them their lives it's going to cost us our lives and we need to help them and what we can do What we can do in this point is to make sure others hear the story. So, Emily, I want you to understand what it looks like in your town. Come join me on the HSAA EMS Facebook page to understand. And if you see something you are concerned with, please take a moment, write a letter, pick up the phone, call your constituency office, talk to those in power, those who are in charge of this, and say... We need to start filling these vacancies. We need to have our paramedics taken care of so that they can take care of us. Because in no way, in no way should we be asking them for 12 hours of frontline critical response, plus another couple hours of overtime because you're trapped in another city trying to get home. Because just put that stress on it. Good thing that their kids aren't in daycare, or maybe they are. For the fourth time, the daycare is going to toss them, right? These are the, they're humans. They have they have the everyday pressures that we all do but you were right at the start they're magical because they get it done they get it done to save the lives of Albertans and we need to save theirs now we need to make sure everybody knows what the hell's going on here and that we need to resource our members properly because there is no way we should go code red ever ever in this province Michelle I want to I want to go back to the code red for a moment I'm gonna I'm gonna confuse our conversation with Emily for just a second
0: that's okay. Emily will survive.
2: <laughs> we'll, we'll, send her a, we'll send her a postcard after this. Yeah. You know, I, I was talking recently with someone about when we should expect to see something like a code red. And here's an example. Tornado 1987. That'll put us on a code red. The humble bus crash in Saskatchewan, that'll put us on a code red. You can't staff to that level of intensity. I get it, right? We don't have, you know that but when code red is every hour of every day somewhere in this province there is something wrong when it's become normalized we have to recognize that this is not normal or safe for us as citizens for them as paramedics trying to get to us they're driving lights and sirens hell shut the lights off i can i can hear the frustration what's the point in driving lights and sirens for a friggin' hour we can't be asking of this of them so Those expectations that Tornado 87 would push us to a point of disaster, yes. They have pushed us to the point of everyday operations has become that disaster. So,
1: For
0: my last question, I think, um, and then I'll offer you an opportunity to share any closing thoughts that you have. Um, We've talked about sort of what... Average Albertans like myself or Emily could do in terms of following the Facebook page, in terms of um, talking to our elected officials around a need for increased hiring, moving people to FTE from, you know, part-time so that they can have access to appropriate, not nearly enough, but at least some base services. It sickens, it sickens me beyond to think about someone coming to save my life, not having health insurance. I can't even get into that part of this, that conversation in the next 11 minutes. Otherwise, it, yeah, we will just never stop. Um, but for the first responders at home who are watching, um What what would you like – I mean, as an Albertan, I want to remind them that they're valued. I want to remind them that I am so, so grateful for what has been offered to me because of their sacrifices. Um, but as Mike from the HSAA, what services do you want to remind them that they have access to?
2: I wish wish there were more. I wish I had a list that was actually substantial. Our members have access to presumptive PTSD legislation that forces them into the WCB world. Our members have access to a few hours of mental health uh, services outside of that because to, to get into a true treatment program, you have to go through a WCB program. Our members are standing in hallways, eating sandwiches at hospitals. They are uh, looking for bathrooms at gas stations in between calls. Uh, they are...
0: Uh, so just in case anyone listening at home isn't aware since we've gotten into slang, um, PTSD does stand for post-traumatic stress disorder, um, which we've noticed it uh, A steep increase in first responders um, over the last few years, a lot due to 14 hours of non-stop high adrenaline, urgent situations that are truly life and death. And you can't save everyone, no matter how gifted, skilled, trained, or otherwise you are. Some things just can't be turned around. Um, And that Repeat exposure to extreme crisis, tragedy, and trauma can play an unimaginable and extremely significant toll on folks' mental health and well-being. I've heard from some paramedics in the pop AB Twitter chatter universe that that designation of pre-declared PTSD is not as simple as that. No, Um, no. <laughs> And so maybe you could shed some light on that for folks at home as well, because I mean, I know again today there were a couple of news articles um, about end of life decisions, suicides happening within your field. Yes. Um, because yeah. we haven't, as a society, provided the supports that are needed for folks to continue to survive.
2: Michelle, i'm gonna I'm gonna try to walk through this one as best I can for you. Uh, the system, the system is broken. Uh, our Our members, as you've described, are responding to high intensity. Uh, situations and any any battlefield commander wouldn't keep their troops in the trenches let's just do the COVID world of 20 months straight because it's more than that it's 10 years worth but we've left them in these trenches battling trying to get to your call and that intensity level and then you get off shift and the phone rings 22 times for you to come back for overtime it just never lets go you don't have that chance to detach to reset because your brain can't take that level of intensity for a career without damage the presumptive ptsd uh, and, and i apologize for your for your listenership i didn't uh mean to to step into slang their post-traumatic stress disorder and i only only because of a post that i read recently from the spouse of a first responder i will state uh just last week in a community not far from where I'm sitting right now in West Edmonton uh, lost a lost a frontline member due to mental health because they just can't uh, continue at the level. And so when there is minimal support, when there is no recognition from an employer, when there's a government that says uh, you can do more with less, which means you're not doing enough now with what you got work harder, vacation time, loo time being cancelled because I can't give you the time off. So you can't even, when you are recognizing that you are failing, you can't even pull back respectfully. So the only option now is to, I'm going to use the term ring the bell for lack of better and say, I give up. I need someone to look at me and say that I am in trouble here, which means now walking the path of WCB and crisis uh, assessments and diagnoses that are, you know, occupational stress injury versus post-traumatic stress disorder. And and now I've got to go face my colleagues and family and say, what? How, how do I, as the person that can walk in your door and do something magical, turn to my colleagues and say, I can't. So, oh, I didn't think we were going to walk this path, Michelle. Uh,
0: (sighs) I thank you so very much, Mike, for walking this path, because I think I like to hope that one of the things that will come out of the tragedy that is COVID is a deeper understanding that we can't all keep going like this that this is not a healthy society, that this is not a supportive society, that this is a society that buries its head frequently in the sand and chooses to not see things that could be fixed with meaningful policy and investment and things that will serve all of us including your individual members and Emily, my imaginary neighbor on the other side of the fence, because we're afraid to talk about it.
2: Michelle, I'm going to say this. I need people to not be afraid. I need people to stand up, be proud of their paramedics, be proud of the dispatch emergency system that we have, be proud of our healthcare system because they have been battling in this COVID trench for over 20 months, and they're not giving up. They're still going to work every single damn day. And so when I when, when you said, you know, any last words, I'm going to say this. Don't give up on them. Stand tall. Protect our paramedics. Protect our frontline emergency system. Protect our healthcare system. Keep it in the public hands. Defend them. They are defending you with all they have. It has been my privilege, Michelle, to spend time with you. I don't think we've ever met before, and I hope we have an opportunity to have a one-on-one conversation (laughs) in front of I don't know how many people again one day. But I want you to walk away with this. Be proud. They are out there putting their boots on the ground, uh, answering those 911 calls, receiving patients in hospitals, doing all they can to get you well and get you back to a life that you can be with your family And maybe even your neighbor, Emily, too. That's their goal. It had always been their goal. And they will do it as best they can. But right now, in this battle, they need everyone's help.
0: I would also like to, as we say goodbye, offer um, to my fellow Albertans, be just as proud when they find the voice to say that they need help. Because I think that's the only way we stay on a path where we can access the help that we need when we need it, is if your members have the robust support that they need to make it through every day. Thank you so much, Mike. Thank this, you. Yeah. I yeah. I will I will end with as always, this topic is too large to discuss in an hour. And I thank you so much for joining me and everyone who is listening and will listen over the weekend. Um, On behalf of POPAB, I just want to say as we approach the end of 2021, we will be continuing to tweak our briefing frequency. Um, We pride ourselves on providing information to Albertans when needed and not talking just for the sake of hearing ourselves talk. (laughs) Um, So we are going to move to an every second week format for the next month and then take a hiatus towards the end of December. We don't like to sprint things on people. Um, but as always, if something needs to be highlighted, we will make sure to do it in a timely fashion. So please subscribe in whatever format you usually join us to be notified in case Pop Alberta needs to pop up um, prior to our next scheduled briefing, which is currently slated to be Wednesday, December 1st, 2021. So until next time, Stay safe, Alberta and BC. As always, I get to say this one with a little bit of a smile. Remember, COVID-19 is airborne. Wear the best mask you have access to, and vaccines really do save lives.